Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to Oh God, What Now? Never mind the vaccines, the government has given us all a grim reminder that they're a bunch of wrong-uns after all. I'm Dorian Linsky, and here's who's on wrong and patrol this week. <laughs> Ian Dunt is editor-at-large for politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hi, mate. First up, having decided there isn't enough money in the coffers to give NHS staff a decent pay rise, the government's new defence review reveals that there's more than enough for good old nuclear warheads. It's a long document, about 100 pages. I'm sure you've read all of it twice. What does it reveal about global Britain's new post-EU priorities? We're going we're gonna to pivot to Asia, you know, because Europe isn't working anymore. So it's basically like the pivot to video of 2021 and likely to be just as successful. We're going to pivot to Asia. We're going to try Asia now. And of course, that involves this move, which is kind of predictable, right, on the, on the nuclear warheads. So it, it's predictable in, the, in those two senses of, first of all, a little bit of breaking international law, probably. I mean, I'm sure that will get figured out whether it is. It looks di- like completely incompatible with the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And secondly, that kind of sort of micro-dick sexual insecurity as national policy posture which you tend to see from Johnson. So it's the thing of like, well, look at how big, you know, look at how big our cock is, because now we're going to have an extra sort of nuclear warhead. We were aiming for 180 by the mid-2020s, where they're now going to increase the cap to 260. Um, the thing with the treaty is, it doesn't ask that much of you. You know, it doesn't ask you to unilaterally disarm. All it asks you to do is just keep on reducing the number. It's a slow, long process, but you keep on reducing it. So this, you know, for what reason? Like you can already destroy, we can destroy the world if that is apparently something that we consider important to us many times over with the amount of nuclear missiles that we have. We can do that anyway. What benefit? World beating, yeah, world I'm, destroying. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, that's me. That's me. I've, I've just sunk into complete depression about thinking about this. I, really, I find the fucking nuclear debate so, so frustrating because it just, it, Anytime it comes up, people just start acting like actual fucking lunatics. And it, it inevitably, once people start talking about it, it always gets to that conversation, right, where you're going to have like a, a journalist go, would you press the button? And everyone sits there going, it is now important that this politician will say into the camera that they're willing to kill millions of men, women, and children. And that apparently is a fucking requirement for having authority in this country. And you just think, I, I just can't stand it. Every time it comes up, my heart sinks. And I just think everyone's gone completely insane. <laughs> I just wanted to lean into the camera and go, I'd kill them all. <laughs> <laughs> that is heart, what they're saying. Wouldn't even skip a beat. 
<laughs> I know, and that is considered the sort of authoritative, you know, sensible yeah. mainstream thing to say. And you're just like, that is a frankly sort of emotionally and morally insane situation that we've gotten ourselves into. Also, the EU has begun legal proceedings against the UK over the government's decision to unilaterally extend the grace period, which suspends checks on goods crossing the Irish border. Um, how much trouble are we in? Will they see us in court? All of us? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, it's en masse. I mean, this is going to keep on happening. I mean, to me, like the real trouble is, where does this process end? Because it's obvious that the UK position is we're just going to keep on slicing away, chipping away at this thing. You can already see them making the argument, you know, the protocol doesn't work. All is forgotten about the fact that, you know, mere weeks ago, these guys were saying, well, this is a thing that has to be done. This is a great deal. So they're going to keep on chipping away at the protocol. And what scares me about it is ultimately when you follow that line down, it ends at some point after a certain amount of chipping away with the EU saying, well, we've got a complete hole in the single market. You know, we don't have a single market. We can't really ascertain where the border of it is. So therefore, we have to build it on the island of Ireland. You, you, you wouldn't really be able to blame them for that. You have to maintain the integrity of your customs area. And, and that's the sort of scary part of it. And of course, once they did that, we'd have the British government saying, look how villainous they are, how disgraceful their behavior is, how they don't care about Ireland. But that, that seems the remorseless logic of this situation. I mean, that was bad enough when you had Michael Gove there, who at least for all of his many faults, did have the capacity to talk with them in a fairly civilized way. Now we've got Frost there. You just think, well, that that does seem to be the direction of travel. And it, it's pretty alarming. to be honest. Yeah, Frost has really been the stealth villain of Brexit. He has, yeah. He came on late. He came on late. We barely even noticed him. And then out he comes. He's this moustache twirling twat who seems intent on following the worst course of action on any given day that he could possibly take. Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hello, Ros. Hello, Dorian. So the latest count, 11 countries have now suspended use of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, including Germany, Italy, France and Spain, citing concerns that the jab causes blood clots. But the World Health Organization says there's no link. The numbers are tiny. Now, the Brexity interpretation, of course, is that it is a foreigner's opposition to a vaccine developed in the UK. But what do you think is behind this? I don't really think it's about Brexit, though Brexit, as ever, does not help. Uh, there are lots of things at play. I mean, EU countries are hacked off that they've exported Pfizer vaccines to us, but we haven't exported AstraZeneca vaccines to them. And the reason for that is because we ordered them first, so we get priority. But the EU is pretty hacked off about that because it's one of the reasons why its vaccine programme is going so slowly. And today, with Ursula's von, uh, Ursula von der Leyen's press conference, you saw some of that frustration where she's threatening to stop exporting Pfizer vaccines to us. But at the same time, AstraZeneca is not quite as good as Pfizer. And there were those unfounded reports in Germany that it didn't work in elderly people, which Emmanuel Macron helpfully repeated, Mm. but were later proved to be wrong. But nonetheless, they've had that effect. And now lots of people in France and Germany have been refusing the AZ vaccine anyway. And in that context, it's less surprising that other EU countries fell into line behind Germany when Germany said they were worried about the blood clot issue and were going to pause it. You've got to remember that not every country is as excited about vaccines and as, you know, behind the vaccine programme as we are. Scepticism is still really high in France, for example. And even in the UK, 
you probably get slightly misleading view of it because the enthusiasm of kind of well-off middle classes disguises some big pockets of scepticism in this country. There was a UCL uh, LSE study out today, which you can read all about on the LSE COVID-19 website, obviously. And that shows that two thirds of young black Britons under 18s would be reluctant to get the vaccine if it were ever their turn to get it. That's two thirds. That's a lot. But we don't get that impression from the general sense of enthusiasm. Nonetheless, there are still big issues over over vaccine hesitancy. Well, for much of the pandemic, we've criticised governments like ours not being cautious enough. Is this an example, uh, you know, what the German health body has, has done here? Is this an example of, sort of the wrong the wrong kind of caution that, you know, uh, social distancing and lockdowns caution good um, with a vaccine like this caution bad? Yes, um, but human beings are very bad at assessing risk and they're particularly bad at assessing risk when it comes to vaccines. It's psychologically difficult to have something injected into you that has a chance, however remote, of hurting you. And however much greater the chance of you dying from COVID is. And that's the big thing that you have to overcome. And that's what the German government, the French government, the other governments are all worried about, that more and more people will start to refuse AstraZeneca anyway. So they might as well pause it and try and get some clarity. Well, um, if the uh, if the NHS is listening, I'm well up for some AstraZeneca. <laughs> yeah, well, Boris Johnson said today that if he when he got he got his vaccine, he was going to get AstraZeneca. So you're in good company there, yeah, Boris Johnson. So NHS, you can, you can catch me on Twitter uh, to offer me a vaccine. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking with our special guest about the media. Between 2013 and 2018, James Harding was director of BBC News, during which time he wrestled with the emerging threats of fake news, complaints over the treatment of Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Paxman, and oversaw coverage of everything from Trump to Brexit. Prior to that, he was the youngest ever editor of The Times, taking over the job in 2007. He was in the chair during the Leveson inquiry. The Telegraph reported that his critical coverage of the News of the World phone hacking scandal played a large part in Rupert Murdoch signing to replace him. In 2018, he co-founded the slow news site Tortoise with a mission to cut through the noise and offer a clearer, more patient kind of news. James Harding, welcome to A God What Now. Thank you very much, Dorian. I've got to say, I've been sitting here grinning away at the version of the top of the hour, the news items at the top of the hour. And I really just want to say I really enjoyed Ian's introduction to the very boringly titled Integrated Review. And it made me think, what would life be like if you had more swearing in BBC Bulletin? <laughs> <laughs> The dream, is that Ian? Is, is your idea that we would switch on a Today program? That we would say, you know, good morning at seven o'clock today. Is the, the ONS has just released the latest GDP numbers, and they're fucking terrible. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that your idea of how we're going to kind of breathe a bit more life into news? I mean, it had never occurred to me, but I think you've just presented that idea so well that I can't <laughs> see how anyone could possibly argue with it. If we'll I, call Kathy Clarkston. Kathy Clarkston will be on this from tomorrow. Let's see whether we can get her in. <laughs> so, James, before Tortoise, back in 2016, you talked about the concept of slow news at the BBC, which is giving viewers better explanations of why things were happening and not just a kind of relentless bombardment of what was happening. How far did you get with that at the BBC? Were there, were there things that you introduced that kind of pushed coverage in that direction? Yeah, we had a go. We definitely had a go. It's funny when I when I heard about you know what you're do, doing, Dorian, and the sort of the, the renaming of this podcast and oh God, what now? It, it really felt uh, familiar as a feeling. 
sitting in a newsroom and, and for anyone who's really involved in the news was just this sense of being bombarded by the news and then also feeding it with that headline addiction that you know that so many of us unfortunately have and realizing that for all the information that you were you were getting it was harder and harder to understand what was going on and it, it was more difficult i found to be clear about what i thought was driving the news behind the news and so yeah we did we did set up a slow news department we set up a bunch of different things within the bbc but but the nature of linear broadcasting i.e being on air all the time and having to be live and alive to what's just happened means it's really difficult to carve out the time and space to commission, edit, develop those ideas. And so we certainly did more of it. And, and lots of people in the BBC said, to be fair, look, we have something called the slow news department, it's current affairs. But there's something slightly different about analysing what's in the headlines over commissioning some of those longer-term stories and longer-term you know, films and documentaries. Mm. And how has uh, Tortoise fared during the pandemic? Because obviously we've never had such a big story to process with so many moving parts, nor uh, as much time to read about it. Well, I, I, I guess I, I probably rather wish I was in Ros's line of work in the sense that at least you know what you're looking at all the time. We, we had, we had, I think, the same thing that a lot of people had, uh, which was, you know, a year ago, second, third week of March, thinking, oh, we're just going to get wiped out by this. Because a large part of what Tortoise does is bring people together in our newsroom in purpose person and we took our newsroom on the road and held what we call thinking these open news meetings mm. and of course that all stopped just all stopped overnight um, but but like a lot of things and you know i know podcasts are part of this like a lot of things what you actually discovered was there was a whole way of connecting with people and a much broader range of people and uh with with very different views and interests and so actually given what we'd set out to do which was to have an open newsroom to create thinkings that were a system of organized listening, i.e. a place where you could have civilized disagreement. Actually, what's been brilliant is we've been able to bring many, many more people in, and as a result, many different views. It's great. Well, later on, we'll be talking to James about the future of news, the fate of the BBC, the arrival of new right-wing TV channels, and lots more. Plus, the police crime sentencing and courts bill. Can Parliament amend the most draconian Home Office legislation in decades? And will the Met's shocking actions on Clapham Common make a difference? And in the extra bit, exclusive to Patreon backers, it's almost a year since the first COVID lockdown. We'll be looking back at what was happening, how we felt when real life turned into a John Wyndham novel. You can get that extra bit when you support us on Patreon, plus bonuses like early podcasts and merchandise. Search Patreon, oh God, what now, to find out how. So the police crime sentencing courts bill has landed as confidence in policing among women in particular has collapsed after the Sarah Everard case and the Met's disastrous handling of last weekend's vigil. Ian, there's a, there's a lot in the bill. Maybe we should sort of focus on, on the bits that made you so angry. Uh, maybe some of those are things that, that haven't had enough attention yet. Well, it's clauses 54 to 63 is really what you need to look at. And these are the areas that are dealing with trespass, which is essentially a structured attack on gypsy and traveller communities and started looking at public order, essentially at protests. And what it does is it takes the old act, the 86 Public Order Act, which was, by the way, when it was released, a, considered a fucking draconian piece of law, okay, like an infringement on the British right to protest, past Margaret Thatcher, of course, not exactly a very well-known liberal, and looks at that bill and goes, well, actually, maybe we can do more stuff to kind of restrict the right to protest even further. 
The primary method in which it does this is the concept of noise. Now, you wouldn't fucking know it when you were watching the Commons over the last two days because they wouldn't mention it, not once. Priti Patel stood up. In one sentence, she mentions this provision and said, but of course, the threshold is very high. So let me talk to you about what the threshold is. It is that um, an organization can be disrupted in its work by the virtue of the noise or that a passerby can experience serious unease, alarm or distress. Okay. Now, you just imagine any fucking protest that you have seen in your life and just think which wouldn't satisfy that benchmark. I cannot think, I'm sure there are some protests that are performed by mimes, but outside of those, any protest would fall under this. Now, that that doesn't mean that the police will close down every single protest. They won't. What it means is that they're giving the police the discretion. They're giving them the power to impose restrictions on protests, including where they go, how many people are there, the noise that they make, et cetera, et cetera on the basis of noise, and on the basis of noise, given that noise is a core function of what a protest is supposed to be, that it is a demonstration, literally a demonstration of an argument, of a view, typically used by the people who are marginalized most from the media, from politics, by those who most struggle to make their voice heard, it essentially says the police can close down any fucking protest they like. That's really what the bill does. When it comes to protest, that is what it accomplishes. But again, you wouldn't have fucking known it because the Home Secretary wouldn't talk about it. The Justice Secretary stood up at the end of that two days of debate, said, well, it's it's all been a bunch of hysterical nonsense, wouldn't fucking mention the noise. There were no MPs on the Tory benches that mentioned the noise provision, but from one MP who said she'd go against it and one MP who said he was in favour of it because he wanted to end protests in Parliament and didn't think they should be able to take place. It was just this deafening fucking silence in the face of what actually is in that bill, in black and white, and which they completely refuse to talk about. And how did, what are the origins of this bill? Like, was, was the sort of anti-protest impulse a reaction to something specific like Extinction Rebellion? <clears throat> well, this is the weird part, right? So there was a judicial review a couple of years back uh, by Jenny Jones, who's the Green Peer in the House of Lords. Very, very good, very impressive uh, politician, I think. Um, wrong about many things, but hugely impressive. Um and she didn't do a review because they were looking at the XR protests and they found that, you know, basically you were making centralized decisions about the restrictions they were placing on these, on these various different protests, quite small that were happening in different parts of London at the same time. The judicial review said, no, no, you're going to have to have the senior officer there at the scene in order to do this. So what we were expecting from this was the power to have centralized decision making on these provisions. But that's not fucking in there. That's the weird part. The thing that we all expected to be in there actually isn't in there. Instead, out of fucking nowhere comes this provision on noise. However, there is other stuff in there that could suggest, in in quite extreme scenarios, you would imagine, or maybe, you know, they just have no restraint at all. There is some kind of centralized decision-making because it does seem to hand powers to the Home Secretary. So one of the clauses says that she can change the meaning of the term serious disruption in the 86 Act by statutory instrument. What that means is she doesn't need to go to fucking Parliament. She doesn't need to have the debate. Statutory instruments, whether they're positive or negative, have a bare minimal thread of fucking scrutiny going on in Westminster. She can just unilaterally say, I'm now changing what serious disruption means in the original Act. So let's say that you did have a series of protests which were completely silent, they were unable to alarm even the oldest, most fragile uh, human being who happened to be walking past them or to distract any office from what it was doing. You could still, in that scenario, have the Home Secretary decide, well, I'm just going to change the definition of this key term without consulting Parliament. 
And then you would suddenly be able to do it. And that could be the centralized process by which they would do it. But other than that, it doesn't seem to line up with the things that the police themselves were suggesting that they needed when they were dealing with those Extinction Rebellion protests. Ross, the right to protest is enshrined in the European Convention on Human Rights, to which we are still signed up. Can it protect us from the worst excesses of this bill? Yeah, there's a strong case. I mean, it's more than strong to be made that it's this bill really does infringe the ECHR. I mean, it, it, the court has said that freedom of assembly, as enshrined in Article 11 of the Convention, protects a demonstration that may annoy or cause offence to persons opposed to the ideas or claims that it is seeking to promote. Now, that is actually, I mean, the the the, the uh, bill here is uh, gives police powers to ban protests that might offend anybody, let alone the people that uh, that are actually being targeted by them. So I, I can't imagine this would possibly this could how this could not fall foul of the convention. I think it's very likely that the government will be taken to Strasbourg over this bill, quite possibly by the Good Law Project, that would be an obvious thing to happen. But then what happens if the government loses the case? Obviously, it should amend the legislation. Uh, if it doesn't, it could end up being kicked out of the Council of Europe, if you regard that as a deterrent, which you know the government might not. The trouble is that this can take a very long time, and sometimes it doesn't happen at all. Back in 2005, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that prisoners should have the right to vote uh, uh, in, in, in the famous case, the Hearst case. 16 years later in Britain, prisoners are still not entitled to vote. It will also cost a lot of money and the inevitable charge that rich activists, liberal lawyers are trying to change our laws and depend on Europe will be invoked. It, this, this, this could run and run and run. So I don't think we should hold out too much hope that the convention is going to save us from this in the short term. Thinking more more broadly about the events uh, of the last few days, the murder of Sarah Everard felt as galvanising as, as the murder of George Floyd, inspiring the sudden huge outpouring of rage and grief from women. But the issue of how to regard the police, and obviously that's intensified by the timing of this bill, has already created tensions between the ad hoc group Reclaim These Streets and the more radical, long-running Sisters, Sisters Uncut. Do you think this is a movement that has come out of this murder? And if so... Is it already splintering because of different demands? No, I don't think a movement has yet emerged. I don't think there's enough to coalesce around yet, including what should be done about uh, the problem of of, uh, violence towards women. I think this is an issue that cuts through very simply to lots of women. They see it it in quite simple terms and, and they're right to do so. Inevitably, lots of small groups try to jump on the bandwagon, as often happens with this kind of issue, and in order to push their own causes. It was actually good last weekend to see the left coalescing around an issue because it feels like that hasn't happened for a long time. And sometimes we're fighting each other on other issues. It, it, there was a feeling of great solidarity, which was nice to have in the face of this this appalling what, what happened on Saturday night. It will be interesting to see what Reclaim the Streets does with all the money it's raised so far, which is actually, I think, half a million pounds, according to Prime Time today. It's a lot of money. Um, it will be very, I, I will be interested to see what they decide to do and how they decide to campaign now. But on the general principle that police shouldn't manhandle and arrest women at a peaceful vigil to commemorate a woman who was killed when she was walking home, 
And when an officer, a police officer, was the person who'd been charged with her murder, I think there's an enormous amount of unity at the moment. Well, the latest uh, cunning plan is to have more plainclothes police officers in nightclubs because nothing <laughs> nothing makes for a relaxed night out than an undercover copper. Um, is, is the law, is it, is it sort of uh, limited to think of the law as the best solution to problems like sexual harassment, um, especially following a case where the police a part of the problem. Yeah, I have to say, this is just miserable, isn't it? I mean, how, exactly how it would make you feel safer. I mean, they're plain clothes. How exactly would you know they were a cop there? I mean, Spot the Cop could be an intriguing game that you could play, I suppose, on nights out. Uh, moving on to your actual question. Um, the, would legislation help? I'm actually not convinced that outlawing sexual harassment by trying to define it more explicitly is going to help at this point. Um, we're addicted a bit to more law at the moment as a solution to all kinds of problems. The problem is law only works when you can either enforce it or you have society's buy-in. So you don't have to, in effect. I mean, we already fail to prosecute the vast majority of rapes. Why would introducing a very difficult to define, inevitably nebulous offence be any different. I think we could achieve more with a big government-backed campaign to ram the message home that sexual harassment and sexual violence towards women is unacceptable. I think that would personally work better than taking it, uh, trying to bring in bring in more and more detailed laws. Well, I just say the first, uh, the first time I realised I was getting older was when somebody at a gig that I was reviewing uh, thought that I was an undercover policeman. <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking, I had that once. I was in a park and there were some kids like taking drugs. And when I walked by, he, what's the, what's the thing for police? Is it 5 0? Mm. And he was like, five, looked at me and just went, 5 0, And I was like, no! People won't diddle drugs in front of me. It's just really insulting, I think. <laughs> James, it's often been said that Johnson was slow to introduce uh, lockdown measures because he's a libertarian at heart. But this is a very authoritarian bill. Do you think that people read Johnson wrong? Or is this coming from sort of elsewhere in the government? Is this coming from, from the Home Office? And it doesn't really sort of, you know, it's not really his top priority. Well, you know, it was so odd listening to Ian. Uh, I was thinking to myself, there something very strange is happening in the world where things that Ian Dunn is saying has, have been sort of echoed by Theresa May. You know, <laughs> Theresa May is saying something, you know, not quite as forceful and with, without quite the same language, I should point out, Ian, but the point that she was making, which was there's a fine line between populism and popular and that, you know, our freedoms depend on that, that's it's quite amazing to think of Theresa May, not just given the character, but also her time in the Home Office, that she's also deeply uncomfortable about this bill. And I think the curious thing is it's not authoritarianism I, 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 alone, because there's clearly that to it. But just to add to the points uh, that Rosneen were making, you know, I'm really struck by this additional uh, measure around the toppling or the... Uh, defacement of memorials, of statues, 
Right? And the idea that the toppling of a statue is, could now result in a 10-year prison sentence. And I think that speaks to something that's been really surprising about Johnson in number 10 versus Johnson in the London mayor's uh, office, which is he's become much more conservative reactionary, and he is much more socially conservative. You know, all of the kind of culture wars that he's choosing, not just taking sides on, but choosing to fight on. And so, you know, you go back to the arguments over Rule Britannia and and Johnson in saying, you know what, we, we you know, we don't want to be quote unquote telling lies about our past. If we tear down the statue of Edward Colston, we'll be telling lies about our past. Ditto, you know, Cecil Rhodes. And this legislation speaks to that crowd. And and, and forgive me, Dorian, this might be a slight meander. It seems incredibly short-sighted politically. I mean, whether you disagree with it, which I passionately do, but, but even as a political calculation, look at the direction of travel in the United States. Look at the job that Johnson has to do to try and make friends with a White House that really could care less about him and the current administration in the UK. And between Biden and Kamala Harris, they have a very strong view on culture as politics. And, and Johnson has chosen the other side. So I do think that's a big, big, big piece of this. And, and, and the one other thing I, I'll just pick up on is I thought you made an interesting point about Sarah Everard and George Floyd. I, I can't speak to the, the whether or not you think there's a movement here, but there is definitely a moment. And for me, it feels much more like Stephen Lawrence and McPherson, and that the McPherson report followed what happened in the killing of Stephen Lawrence, and it exposed something that people people knew but hadn't been articulated, which was institutional racism in the police. And and I think the, the murder of Sarah Everard is doing the same. It's exposing what people know but hadn't articulated, which was institutional sexism, sexism in the criminal justice system. And so these are moments, and, and from them, there, there may or may not be movements, there may be different forces within them, but they do make a difference. They really do. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Our guest this week is James Harding, former director of BBC News, former Times editor and co-founder of Tortoise Media. So James, uh, to, to go to one of your, your former jobs, the BBC Charter is up for review in 2027, but the groundwork is already beginning. Um, there hasn't been a government this hostile to the BBC since the 1980s, a lot of people would say. What do you think is driving the animus beyond the usual uh, conservative complaints about, you know, liberal bias and so on? So I'm always a little wary of this, Dorian, because I think the usual is is worth keeping in mind. Mm. I think there's always an argument uh, around the BBC, and politicians are always the people who argue most fiercely because they care most about the coverage. So I I think it's always worth trying to get a sense of how much worse is it really, you know? And there's always a comparison, you know, is it as bad as Margaret Thatcher's days? And and by the way, it's worth remembering that Margaret Thatcher herself, who 
was infuriated endlessly by the BBC, also realised that in the end, there was nothing you could do about it, not least because there was such big uh, public support for it. So I don't, I, I'm not one of those people who's, you know, going around hang dog thinking this is it, the end is nigh for the BBC, quite the opposite. I think if anything, the last year has shown just how much you need, you know, public service information and the, you know, the quality of what the BBC does. I think there are though two things that are really big that are happening and are, that are kind of legitimate questions. One is what happens when the world changes? What happens when people start streaming more? What happens when you can get your information on demand? What's the future of broadcasting and how do you keep satisfying the audiences of your of your big channels and also, you know, play a proper uh, role in that streaming world. And the BBC, to its credit, has done that by being way, way ahead of everyone else with the development of uh, iPlayer. But it's it's a content game now and there's there are big questions there. And then at the moment, you know, it, it has changed. You know, people do matter at the top of politics. You know, the, the personalities, Lee Kane, Dominic Cummings, did have particular gripes about the BBC and that was being as you I'm sure you saw kind of leaked into the papers for much of last year I think if you look at it the tone really has changed I'm not saying that you know Boris Johnson and uh, others in that cabinet are not going to take the occasional swipe but I'm less structurally worried I don't think there's kind of as much of a, a sense of vendetta and grievance within Downing Street towards the BBC because there's always you know the way the BBC is talked about is very very politicized uh if it just 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 recently there were a lot of assumptions made about sort of cancellation of the mash report which was you know it wasn't actually viewed by that many people but it, the cancellation was seen as this pro-government crackdown you know tim davy signaling to the government that uh you know he was going to be tough on satire and the causes of satire and when you were at the bbc you know you had both sides of the brexit war attacking you for being either too pro or too anti how does how does that affect your thinking if you are constant if, if every move you know, and, and literally a kind of line on the Today programme or, or, or whatever, you know, a Newsnight segment is interpreted by various people as a sign of uh, of bias one way or the other. Like, how do you just sort of do your job day to day? Well, I think that, funny, just, just one thing on that point about satire is I really, really think that comedy matters, right? So one of the things I think kept the United States sane through the Trump years was the quality of what was happening late night in late night television. Mm. And and we do have an issue in the UK, which is that, and this is sorry, a boring answer to a big and interesting question, it's that if you want to have really good comedy, right, if you want to really make fun of your politicians, which we need to do nightly, then you're going to need a writer's room. And the economics of it mean that you need to have a team of people there who are going to come up with two to three hours worth of jokes because only about 15 minutes of them are going to land. I think we've got a real problem in our in our media and our TV culture too around around making sure that we have enough comedy on television that is satirising uh, politicians. I think that is I think that matters enormously. In terms of the day to day, actually, there is there's a certain amount about the BBC which is obviously different to you know this podcast or is different to you know a lot of what you can do in the press in my old paper you know and in the FT before it. You know, there is something that when you are a publicly funded newsroom, you have a job, which is to try to act impartially. That doesn't mean that you're not leaning in on the news. That doesn't mean that you're trying to not trying to pursue what's happening to get after the truth. But it does mean that you're not taking sides in 
public arguments. And I think that that is, you know, as the BBC has shown for years and years and years, that's a doable job. People argue over it and people will argue about your balance of judgments. But it, but it's shown that you can pursue the truth. You can reveal stories. You can do investigative journalism, you know, that some of the best in the world and respect that idea of impartiality. What are you expecting from the uh, very uh, partial GB News and, and Rupert Murdoch's own right-wing news channel? Do you think that they, I mean, the fear, I suppose, is that they're just going to replicate Fox News in the UK, and we know all the sort of problems that that, that caused to US politics, that kind of polarising media. Or, or are there kind of obstacles to that in, in UK, culturally, regulatory? So it's interesting, if you listen to Andrew Neil, and, you know, you know, you know. I worked with Andrew. He's 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 probably as formidable in, an interviewer and and smarter journalist as you can find. So he can really see his way through a story. And if you're studying, by the way, how to do an interview, if you watch Andrew prepare for one, he can see the line through the conversation in a way that is just exceptional. So, you know, I, I think you're going to see some really interesting news and conversations on GB News. The interesting thing to me, though, is the way he's pitched it. It's not a rolling news channel. So it's not, you know, another version of Sky or the BBC News Channel. He's talking about a news-based channel, i.e. the news rolls on and he behind a desk and another set of another sets of strong personalities are going to be there running commentary, running their observations on it. And I and I think there's going to be it's going to be quite testing. I'm a big believer in a kind of boisterous market for ideas. The question is, how do you avoid the world, as you suggested, Dorian, that is the world of Fox, where the boisterous market for ideas becomes a, you know, a marketplace for things that are just untrue or shrill or just, you know, the the, the loudest, angriest voice in the room wins. Where this gets really interesting and hard is your, is your point about regulation. Because, you know, the truth is that, you know, we can say we're on a podcast, you know, they're, they're, they're limits by law about what we can say, but they're not the limits of public service broadcasting that apply to the BBC, ITV, to, to news channels. But Ofcom is required to oversee what happens on GB News and, you know, if and when, uh, News UK's channel too. But that's a really big and different ask for Ofcom. You know, to have that kind of oversight and to try and set clearly what the guardrails are for what's accurate journalism on television in a rolling news channel, I think that's going to be a big ask. And I think they are, in fact, I know they are, really thinking hard and worrying quite a bit about how they do that job. And I want to turn to sort of the, the press um, and sort of online media HuffPost UK staff were told last week um, that having been taken over by BuzzFeed, they're being shut down with over half the staff facing redundancy. Um, obviously, Tortoise has, has launched, you know, in, in a pretty testing environment and done well. But does that, does what's happening at HuffPost make you worry for the future for sort of independent free journalism? What are the kind of pressure points that, that sort of worry you just about being able to fund uh, good journalism online? I think there. I think look, look. I think that the sort of weird thing about being a journalist who's then has a startup is you've got the both kind of qualities: the qualities of a journalist, which is to be sceptical, and the qualities of a entrepreneur, which is to be paranoid. So <laughs> you know, you know, puts you in a nervous spot all of the time. I think that there are clearly questions about how 
new startups, particularly in the UK, where you don't have the enormous market of the US, grow and scale so that they that they you know they break into the national conversation. You know, there's some that you can see try to do that in by kind of buying their way into the marketplace with you know big launches. Some try to build their way in, and both are going to take either money or time. And and you know when we started Tortoise, I remember one one person who was a big kind of West Coast investor said to me, you know that's brilliant. I really think you need to do what you're doing. You know, we are facing the biggest crisis in the public square since the 1930s. We need to make sure that people are going out and, and, and trying to do, uh, you know, new and, and responsible things in journalism. But you might want to go and have a swim in the crocodile pond because you're about as likely to succeed. And I thought, okay, thank you for the, <laughs> for the encouragement. Because his point was the, building these things – is inherently risky, but it's also going to take, you know, time, money and energy. And you may well run out of one of the three um, before you get the thing up and running. And so I suppose that's the thing you've got to be conscious of when you're doing something like this, that it's not like working, as I have previously done for these big institutions in news, which have sort of got a place in the public square. And you can move them a little bit here and move a little bit there. But you kind of know they're going to, they were there before you arrived and they're going to be there after you're gone. And one of the things that's really affected revenues for media companies is big tech has taken, uh, you know, the lion's share of the advertising money. Um, now, in Australia, Facebook has agreed to pay Rupert Murdoch's news corporation for, for its content. Is that the way forward, do you think, sort of worldwide, that, that, that Facebook should be forking out for the journalism? That it's this is a brilliant story, isn't it, Dorian? Because people don't know quite who to be more cross with on this one. Right? So, <laughs> hang on a second. That Mark Zuckerberg, he's trampled all over the truth online. Someone's got to go after them. And then they discover that it's Rupert Murdoch <laughs> who's ending up getting the check. I think, oh, my God, how can that be the outcome that we all wish for? So, Alien versus Predator, uh, isn't it? <laughs> Exactly. I, I've got to say, I've got such a fear of horror films. I haven't seen that, but I can imagine, you know, who's doing that. Um, I, I, the, the, the thing that I really do like, though, and the thing that is a lesson to us in the UK is what the Australians did was say, look, you, you lot, i.e. the established news media and the new social media are going to have to figure this out. Right. And they went away, spent a period of time not figuring it out. And eventually the Australians came in and said, right, we're going to establish a law here. And if in the event that you get into that room and still can't work it out, we'll decide. Mm. We, we adjudicate. And that's there are two really important things about this. One is that national governments can make decisions about international uh, technology companies. The idea that all of this legislation has to happen at once globally has been disproved by what happens in Australia. And the second thing is that we, we tend to think now that these tech nations, because they are so powerful, because they have so much money at their disposal, and because they can just simply move faster than parliaments and governments, are more powerful than states. But they're not. In the end, the state can impose the law and says, if you want to operate... In our marketplace, in our public square, you're going to have to go and abide by these rules. And and I think what Australia's done is going to be something that the rest of the world, I certainly hope the UK sits up and thinks, okay, well, what should we do now? And you've, of course, had personal experience with Murdoch. And, and even people uh, who have many axes to grind with him would say that he has been a staunch defender of newspapers. Do you think the media will enter a new phase when he's gone? How significant 
will that be the post Murdoch moment? I think the media sort of entered a new phase quite a long time ago, don't you think, Dorian? I mean, if you a, think about a new new phase, a new, <laughs> new phase part three, yeah. new phase. <laughs> okay, that sounds ex- that, that sounds exciting. I think the, the, the curious thing about the media world is that lots and lots of new things start, but the old things don't fade away, right? So the, the curiosity is that people predicted 10, 20 years ago that, you know, newspapers would no longer be with us or radio would no longer be with us. But actually, all of those things stick around, and they also can get new leases on life in terms of what happens in social media. Mm. I think what's hard now to try and figure out is – how do you fix the things that really have gone and went so incrementally that we couldn't figure out how to step in? So uh, the biggest thing for me this year politically, and I don't know, you know, Rosny and having sort of seen both the politics and the, uh, you know, and the whole, whole COVID thing, you know, more closely and thought about it more closely than I have, will no doubt have been struck by just the sense of place, right? J- journalism for most of my working life, has sort of thought of itself as a branch of history. You know, the the first draft of history is what people often talk about as journalism. But in the last year, in a way that I never really expected, it felt like, you know, an outlet of the geography department. It feels like where you are matters more than ever. And that really has exposed something that is a a structural and profound change in journalism, which is we really want to know what's going on near us and we want to know who makes the decisions. And if the vaccine rollout is slower than build, we want to know why. And if, you know, hospital mortality rates are higher than elsewhere, we want to know why. And if we aren't getting our financial support, we want to know why and who's accountable. And I'm trying to work out Who's going to do that? Because, you know, I was involved at the BBC at trying to develop new schemes for local reporting. And it did a bit, but there's much more that needs to be done there. And how, if you think about the next phase of journalism, you know, you talk about Rupert Murdoch. He came into journalism with a with an inheritance that came from metropolitan newspapers, Adelaide, etc. If you think about Today, what's going to happen in the metro areas of the UK? Who's going to build the version of journalism that existed, you know, half a century ago? And is that going to be on the back of things like Nextdoor? Is that going to be friendly enough in, in podcasts like this? That's a question I think that's really interesting. So, so I don't know what phase three or sorry, the new phase, you know, the third, the new, new, new phase is going to, is going to look like, but it's going to have to grapple with some of those things. And funny, I just wanted to ask you about a recent media uh, dust-up. With Ian Murray resigned from the Society of Editors after this sort of calamitous defensive response uh, in a statement and on TV to Meghan Markle's allegations of racism in the British press, and and his defensiveness felt quite familiar to me. Do you think that the press is is just institutionally bad at acknowledging criticism? And, and making changes because it always just seems to respond like, well, well, we're holding the rich and powerful to account and uh, everything's fine. Go away. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I think that, I think that there is something, you know, reflexive and defensive uh, about the media. Um, I, 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 of course, I think you see that. I, I think there is something though, that's really made me think about the way in which we tell stories and the stories that we choose to tell you know, in all of this, one of the things that I've tried, we started to look at is, this is the thing it taught us to look at, what stories have been told in the last year? You know, we talked earlier on about George, George Floyd. You know, you'd have to say, obviously, there's been one overwhelming story 
uh, in, tw- in the last year, COVID. But Black Lives Matter has been a colossal story. And actually, how much of that has been told in the UK or how much of it has actually been the UK watching the story play out in the US? How much of that has essentially been a story that's blown into the UK rather than stories that we're really telling ourselves? And it links to this other thing, which is more, and I suppose, Doreen, why I'm sort of making this point is, I think it goes beyond just that kind of reflexive or defensive point. There's some really big structural issues here. And in a year that we've thought a lot about, you know, inequalities of different kinds, I'm really quite interested in information inequality in, you know, not just who's got the connectivity, but but what kind of access to what kind of information and what kind of storytelling are you getting? So I think these things go beyond just a kind of, you know, a culture of people reaching for a sense of their own journalistic purpose and using that in defense when, you know, when the, the press comes uh, under criticism. I think there's some bigger issues here uh, in terms, as I say, you know, what we commission, what we invest in, in terms of our reporting and the information inequality picture. It's time for our regular item, overrated, underrated, when one of the panel picks something that gets far too much attention and something else in the same category that deserves a lot more. This week, it's our guest, James Harding. What have you chosen? Well, I'll tell you what I really wanted to choose, but I didn't think it was kind of serious enough for what you're doing here. I wanted to choose the Starbucks baked goods collection. (laughs) Hugely overrated. And it's amazing to me that an industrial conglomerate like that can't make a muffin. But on the other hand, underrated, <laughs> the fruit cake on British Rail trains. And, and it's amazing to me how good and juicy and reliably tiny a fruit cake is and how it would endure a nuclear winter or a you know massive climate change. It's an amazing thing, that fruit cake. Ha- have it every time. That would be my recommendation. My massively overrated is pre- are press conferences and my massively underrated are select committee hearings. Hmm. Do you have a favourite? Do you have a favourite select committee hearing? Sorry, do you have a, an all-time fave select committee hearing? By, by the way, no, no. My point is, anyone. I mean, the, the, the ones that obviously get famous, the ones where they're drama. The, the boring ones are amazing. <laughs> the ones that you, the ones that no one's in the room, and that you even go online and you read the transcript. Like, oh my god, I can't believe they t- they told us everything in the select committee. Whereas the press conference. Someone asks the question, someone doesn't answer it, then someone moves on and asks a different question rather than following up, and then that the same person doesn't answer that question. And, you know, you watch a, a dance that, that has no music to it. Brilliant. That is obviously true, but clearly the best select busy hearing was when Wendy Deng twatted that bloke in the face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you always oh, go for the hits, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's a super basic bitch thing to say, but it is objectively true. <laughs> yeah, what do you mean with, with, with violence and a cream pie? <laughs> We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for But Your Emails, where we honour the memory of Ray Tomlinson by answering questions submitted by Patreon supporters via the medium that he invented. His first test message in 1971 is said to be, QWERTY UIOP. Can you improve on that? <laughs> Hugh Lewis can. He asks a big one. How can the UK bring its democracy up to date in a way that helps prevent it becoming a Singapore stroke Russian style of uh, scare quotes democracy? Or is it too late to prevent this? There's a lot to unpack there because Singapore and Russia are are, are quite different. Um, But yes, is UK democracy dying? I guess is his uh, uh, 
question and how do you bring it back to life? Well, I don't think it's going to be uh, via some new constitution, um, for, uh, really for the birds at the moment. I mean, by the way, if you want to learn more about constitutions, listen out for my upcoming bunker interview with Linda Colley, who is the world expert on constitutions. Uh, just small ad there. But uh, no, it, sadly, we haven't got time to thrash all that out now. Things are more urgent. I think, um, I think there's no quick fix. Basically, people at large have to show that they are not the uh, somewhat dim-witted, uh, lulled into a stupor uh, mob that the government assume that they are. I mean, there is a hope among the government that the prospect or the fact of us all being vaccinated is going to ensure that we are a compliant and happy populace. And we have to show that there are more things that matter to us than just getting vaccinated against COVID. Other things matter to us now, like freedom of assembly, all the things that have been discussed already in this podcast, and that we care about things like social uh, social justice. Of course, it will get more difficult, ironically, to do that now that our rights to protest are being taken away. But uh, that ultimately is what will turn the tide. Look, it's never going to come from the Tories. The first thing is you've got to get the Tories out if you want to get any kind of constitutional change. And, you know, at some point that will happen. I mean, unless Scotland becomes independent before that happens, in in which case probably it is England with the Tories forever and ever. But barring that, it seems like the the task is to get Labour on board with constitutional reform. And I think the way to do that is to make that precondition of electoral non-aggression pacts with other parties, which if you have those pacts, do make the next election perfectly winnable, not with a majority for Labour, but just with Keir Summer becoming Prime Minister in whatever arrangement gets done. And then it seems, very, this, I'm not about to say anything controversial, the first thing has to be electoral reform towards a single transferable vote system. And, and when you look at the data of the way that the sort of British public, their views and attitudes are not that distinct from Europe, but we have a system that means that if you have a consolidated right and a splintered sort of centre and left progressive forces, then you keep on getting fucking right wing governments. And that's what first past the post always delivers. The step one is electoral reform. And the second one is some form of federalism. And there's no point. It's kind of pretending that that's a really simple process because there are real problems with federalism. The, the, the problem really is that England is too big um, compared to the other nations. That makes it really hard to fit. But if you want to do federalism, you have to start carving up England into about sort of nine electoral units and creating some kind of local democracy in a more dynamic country where there is some kind of freedom for lawmaking, freedom for taxation at a much more local level than there is now. And where the union feels like a cooperative agenda for equals rather than Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland basically being chained to a mad dog. And I think on that basis, that is the agenda. That's the way to do it. But the first step with all of this stuff is getting the parties to agree and the progressive parties to agree a non-aggression pact and trying to get Labour set on actually having constitutional reform as part of the agenda that it will deliver in government. And that's the show. Thanks to Roz. Thank you. Ian. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And our guest, James Harding. Thank you very much for having me. This week on The Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreons, look at your memories on Facebook if you dare, because we're approaching a year since Britain first lockdown and sharing our memories of the days when everything changed. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Deemed as a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello from me to Kim Hanif, James Tiernan, Tim, Richard O'Hara and Patrick Hogan. 
Thanks from me to Anthony Couchman, Sue Puntis, Lawrence Poole, Andrew Morgan and Andrew Patterson. And thanks from me to Sabina Nethercliffe, Sean Trefor, Priscilla Dudia, Christine McLaughlin and Michael, not that one, Howard. God, what now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunn and Ross Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. One audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? is a Podmasters production. Now, if you listen to this on Thursday, March the 18th, here's what was happening in Corona News exactly a year ago. Glassbury and Eurovision were cancelled. The Canada-US border was closed. Stock trading on Wall Street was temporarily halted. Africa was told to prepare for the worst. All schools in the UK were told to close. And EastEnders shut down. Five days later, the whole country went into lockdown. We're going to talk about what we remember, how we felt, and how we've adjusted to this deeply fucked up scenario. Um... Ros, what sticks out for you, like you know, when when shit got real, when you had your last normal day, what what do you remember about that kind of period? Actually, there was no last normal day, which sounds a bit strange, but I quite early on I realised that this was going to be massive, and I had a gathering sense of dread. I got quite annoyed with people who would say things like, "Oh, I can't be asked to worry about it. It's all going to be fine," because I kind of sensed that this was actually very big. It was going to to hit in a big way. Um, that didn't make it any easier, unfortunately, for me to sort of comprehend the enormity of what was happening. But it was, yeah, I, I, I have to say, right from beginning of January onwards, I, I had the bad feels about this. Um. Ian, funnily enough, uh, our last social engagement was when we had you uh, over for dinner on the Saturday prior to that week. I remember that. Well, I remember. I remember. I remember that dinner ending and you saying it's actually quite weird that we haven't mentioned coronavirus. And for some reason, that has fucking stuck with me because it was just like <laughs> little did I know as I walked away, I would not see another human face for twelve months. <laughs> like, yeah, there was that kind of. It was quite, because I definitely remember but talking about it, but going to a book festival, going to a, you know, a kind of really lively book launch, going out for dinner in Chinatown. And there was a weird sort of sense that kind of, that you couldn't catch it until lot, until everything locked down. Do you know what I mean? Like it was safe to go somewhere <laughs> until the government told you it wasn't, which obviously that's not how viruses work. But there almost was a feeling of kind of like, we'll do it now while you can. Whereas in later lockdowns, I've tried to resist the urge to sort of, you know, rush to the pub before the pub closes, because I do, of course, I do remember that you can still catch the virus. <laughs> it's, it's striking, actually. If you, if you look at pandemic uh, plans, which one of my colleagues did recently, and you look back on all the plans for if there was a big pandemic in the UK, and uh, pretty sobering reading, but none of them anticipated lockdowns. They all thought that lockdowns were totally out of the question. They even said that you couldn't have strict travel bans, that that was pretty much unthinkable. As, uh, uh, and, and it just was not thinkable. And then suddenly it was thinkable. 
And of course, you know, we know all the things that made it thinkable, like furlough and Zoom and the prospect of the NHS being overwhelmed. And but but it was um, it was this pandemic did not play out like pandemics were expected to play out, even ones where literally, mm. you know, five far more people were expected to die with a fatality rate of four or five percent. And that was a taster of the extended edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more of Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast. We'll appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening. See you next week.